0: Well, if you have your Bible with you, again, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1271. If you're a guest with us, we began a new series through the book of Titus last Sunday, and we're still in the opening introductory verses this morning. We'll begin reading in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. And I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, uh, devotion, doctrine, and discipleship. Titus chapter 1. Wonderful to hear the pages in your Bible. It's helpful to bring your Bible to church, by the way. Titus chapter one, beginning in verse one, and this is what the word of God says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. According to Titus chapter 1 in verse 5, the Apostle Paul left his young protege in Crete because there were tasks unfinished in the Cretan church and it was Titus's responsibility to address them. These unfinished tasks are the same concerns that need to be addressed in the church today. Every church needs to think carefully about and address the selection and appointment of church elders. Every church needs to warn of the damaging effects of false teaching. Every church needs to properly apply doctrine to duty. Every church needs to proclaim the transforming power of Christ's work. Every church needs to teach the civic and social responsibilities of the people of God. And every church needs to address the practical implications of God's work of salvation in our lives. That's why Daniel Doriani said, to study Titus is to be challenged to embrace the same priorities that Paul expounded in order that we might be used by God for His gospel in our generation. And that's it, friends. We want to be a people, we want to be a church that can be used by God with His gospel for the next generation. And the only way you and I can be a people in a church like that is to be centered on the Word of God. Now, we could consider the theme of this short 3 chapter 46 verse letter, God's blueprint for a healthy church, because in it, Paul lays out for Titus what the church should look like when it is healthy. And he begins by expressing his devotion to God and to his church, by emphasizing the importance of doctrine, and by encouraging discipleship. And last week, we spent all of our time thinking about Paul's devotion to God and to his church. And this morning, we're going to pick up from that devotion, and we're going to think about doctrine, and we're going to think about discipleship. So I want you to see, first of all today, Paul's emphasis on doctrine in verses 2 and 3. And this is what he writes. In hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. In these verses Paul connects his devotion as an apostle of Jesus Christ and as a servant of God to the doctrine with which he has been entrusted. And you'll notice in the text carefully that Paul rests his doctrinal convictions and beliefs in the very nature and character of God by affirming at the outset, God never lies. And because God is the source and measure of all truth, the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews says that it is not just that God never lies, the writer of Hebrews says it is impossible for God to lie. He writes in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And that's the key. Paul has hope in his doctrinal convictions and beliefs because he knows that he is serving a God who never lies. He knows that it is impossible for God to lie. Moses reminded the people of his day of the same thing, that not only can God not say what is untrue, But having said something that is true, God never changes and never alters his purpose or retracts his word. Moses said this about this unchangeable nature and character of God in Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind, has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? It is impossible for God to lie. What he says, he will fulfill. That's why Spurgeon said the decrees of God were not written upon sand, but upon the eternal brass of his unchangeable nature. And friends, this is the foundation of our faith. This is the foundation of our doctrinal convictions and our doctrinal beliefs. The unchangeable nature of God. And since God cannot lie, you and I can believe and trust and rest in every single word that He has given us. And since God cannot lie, the hope that we have of eternal life in Jesus Christ is absolutely secure and in a world who thinks that god's word is no longer valid and no longer relevant and we got to repackage it and rechange it the Apostle Paul is pointing every church and every believer back to the unchangeable nature and character of God from which every single one of His words and commands and principles and precepts flows. And because God never changes, His Word never changes. And because His Word never changes, you and I can have hope. And he says in this text... This is the hope of our eternal life and it is absolutely certain and secure and notice in the text when this hope was promised it was promised before the ages began literally before time began friends I want you to understand this morning that the plans and the purposes of God are not an afterthought with him he planned his salvation he planned his thinking for the whole world down to the very last detail before genesis 1 1 before time ever began and the bible teaches that before time began god the father loved god the son and the father had such pleasure in his son that he chose to share that pleasure by promising his son a bride a people for whom He would give to His Son so that they could share with God the Father in the delight that He has for God the Son. And out of love and obedience to the Father, the Son left heaven to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect human life as our representative, to die a painful and shameful death on the cross for your sin and for my sin, not for sin that He committed. He never committed sin. He died for your sin. He died for my sin. And He was put into a tomb. And three days later, He rose from the dead as a sign of victory over sin and death and Satan. And He ascended to heaven and one day He will return for His people And I want you to know this morning that Jesus Christ, God's Son, did this so that you and I could experience the love of God the Father. And God the Father planned this so that we would behold the delight of God the Son in all of His glory. And as a result, God the Father chose us and God the Son And when you and I confess our sins and we turn from them in repentance and we come to Christ in dependence and trust for our salvation and for our forgiveness and for our restoration, God the Father sees the work of His Son on us and in us. And God the Father begins to love us with the same kind of love that He has for His Son. And God not only delights in His Son, but God delights in the work of His Son that is applied to our life, and therefore God the Father delights in us. And this is the beauty and the glory and the splendor of salvation. And those who are forgiven and set free from their sin and their guilt and their shame are caught up in this wonderful covenant of love between God the Father and God the Son, and we're brought into this love through God the Spirit. It takes a triune God to save people like you and me. We need all of God the Father and all of God the Son and all of God the Holy Spirit. And notice that this plan of salvation, it was manifested, Paul says, in His Word at the proper time. God who is A saving God determined for this great doctrinal truth of salvation to be made known through the preaching of His Word. And He entrusted this preaching to Paul and to Titus and numerous others throughout church history. And listen to me this morning, friends. Even in our technologically advanced society, the foolishness of preaching is still the means by which God has chosen to make His plan of salvation known to equip his people in doctrine, and to build his church. And when Paul says preaching, it literally means to herald. and It's the picture of the town messenger on behalf of the king who comes out into the center court of the town and he stands up on a raised platform and he issues with a loud voice the proclamation from the king. And friends... I want you to understand this morning i don't want to take this for granted i want to make sure you understand that that's what preaching is preaching is a heralding preaching is a proclamation preaching is an announcement of the word of god and the good news of the gospel of jesus christ preaching is not a talk preaching is not success tips and habits preaching is power of God displayed in human weakness in a heralding announcement of the good news of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and if you are not careful in your sophistication you will misunderstand what preaching actually is and the purpose for preaching and the foolishness of preaching And yet, God says of Himself that it is the foolishness of preaching that displays the power of God. And I'll remind us of that this morning as a church. Because the world has no stomach for it. And the very thing that the world needs is the very thing that the world rejects. And I pray that in your doctrinal conviction and truth and foundation that you will never be deceived about what preaching should look like and what it is but in fact that you would encourage it and support it and stand up for it and listen if you will in your humility demand that you have preaching the preacher's responsibility is not to create messages from his own wisdom or cleverness or to manipulate or entertain or sway the audience Preaching is not about the personality of the preacher. It is about the Word of God. It's about God's man with God's message burned into his heart to explain, interpret and apply the word for the good of the people of God. That is preaching. And I want you to listen to these words from Walter Kaiser in his book Towards an Evangelical Exegetical Theology. He describes the importance of preaching and why it is so lacking and people aren't concerned about it in the church. And it is relevant. This was written decades ago and it was—it it is so relevant to our culture. This is what he said. It is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health in many places of the world. She has been languishing because she has been fed, as the current line has it, junk food all kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to her as a result theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted listen it has afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps To make sure its physical health is not damaged by using foods or products that are carcinogenic or otherwise harmful to their physical bodies. That the reality is there could be some people in this room this morning that are more concerned about what they're putting into their physical body that is going to perish and going to wear out and going to be put back into the ground from which it came and not have the same kind of concern for the spiritual food that is being put into their life. Simultaneously. A worldwide spiritual famine resulting from the absence of any genuine publication of the Word of God continues to run wild and almost unabated in most quarters of the church. End quote. It's what the prophet Amos said would happen in the last days. There would be a famine for the hearing of the Word of God in the land. And Paul says, Titus you want to be a healthy church you gotta build it on your doctrine you gotta have a strong conviction that every single word that flows from God is unchangeable because God is unchangeable and Titus you got to preach it you got to proclaim it it is important in the life of the people in the church, and it is important for the ministry of the church. And you have to have it. And so do you know what you find in the book of Titus? Doctrine. You have your Bible open? In Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul directs Titus to appoint elders in every town. But he tells us in the subsequent verses that it's not enough that an elder is sent to sound doctrine. An elder must live what he professes. He must have sound doctrine, and then he must live that sound doctrine. In chapter 1 and verse 9, Titus is told that elders must hold firm to the Word of God, they must instruct in sound doctrine, and they must rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. In chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul says that true and pure doctrine is required of anyone who would speak in the church. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Titus was to teach sound doctrine and older men and older women were to be sound in their faith. They were to believe sound doctrine. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Titus was to show integrity and dignity and sound speech in all of his teaching. He was to have sound doctrine and teaching. And in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul says that slaves are to adorn the doctrine of God. You cannot get away from doctrine in this little book. And what I want you to see this morning is that Paul's devotion to God and Paul's devotion to the church and Paul's devotion to Titus was directly related to his doctrine and what he believed about God and what he believed about God's word. Paul told his other young protege in ministry, Timothy, that you cannot, to be a healthy believer, to be a healthy church, you cannot separate your life and your doctrine. You can't separate the way you live with what you believe. And this is what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Keep a close watch on your life. Keep a close watch on your doctrine. Because your doctrine will inform your life. Doctrine is for life, friends. Doctrine is for living. And if you believe wrong, you'll live wrong. And so you have to believe right. And if we're going to be a healthy church, if you're going to be healthy believers, you have to have the right belief as the foundation for your life. We have to have the right belief as the foundation for our church. Doctrine matters. It mattered to Paul and it should matter to us. And with these words, Paul is teaching Titus to have confidence in his calling, to have confidence in his convictions. Listen, because gospel ministry does not need to be reinvented. It doesn't need to be marketed and it doesn't need to be updated. The church just needs to simply hold fast to and proclaim what God has already said in his word. That's it. You don't need to reinvent it. Proclaim it. Believe it. Live it. So, this text demands that we ask if our life is resting on the sure foundation of the unchangeableness of God and of the unchangeableness of His Word. It demands that we ask, are we building our marriage? Are we building our parenting on the unchangeable character and nature of God and His Word? Are we applying the unchangeable principles of marriage and parenting from the Word of God to our lives? It demands if we're single if we're, or if we're in transition in our lives, if we're thinking about our future and our future desires and plans... Under the scope of the unchangeable nature and character of God and His Word, are we making God and His Word an afterthought to our plans and our future and our direction? Oh friends, do you see the importance of what you believe and believing right? Do you see the importance of a church holding the line and continuing to preach even when it's not popular? Even when other people are demanding that we do other things. Do you see the importance of these matters? Do you see that your devotion to the church and your devotion to God and your devotion to your brothers and sisters in Christ is directly connected to what you believe about God and His Word? It all flows together And since God cannot lie, do you believe this morning that if you'll turn from your sins and trust in Christ as your Savior, that you'll have the hope of eternal life in Him? Doctrine matters, friends. It matters for your life. It matters for your marriage. It matters for your family. It matters for this church. So Paul emphasizes devotion. He emphasizes doctrine. And finally, in verse 4, he emphasizes discipleship. He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. As the title of the book emphasizes, Paul is writing to his young protege Titus. And when you study the Bible, there's not very much that is said about Titus. One scholar described him as, as the most enigmatic figure in all of church history. He's mentioned by name in the book of 2 Corinthians, the book of Galatians, the book of 2 Timothy, and here in the book of Titus. He was Greek and he was a Gentile and Paul was a Jew. But notice the text in verse 4. Even though he was Greek and a Gentile and Paul was a Jew, Paul referred to him as my true child in a common faith. And when he describes him as true, he is referring to Titus's authenticity. He's referring to the fact that Titus was a Christian. That his faith was real. He was real and authentic in his conviction. He was real and authentic in his ministry. He was real and authentic in his life. And when he describes him as a child, it's the same expression that he used for his other young protege in ministry, Timothy. And it suggests that Paul... Like Timothy was Titus's spiritual father. That Paul had led both Timothy and Titus to faith in Christ, that Paul, that Paul had both nurtured and fed and developed and discipled both Timothy and Titus, and that Paul had a strong father son relationship with this man. He intentionally invested in Titus's life. And he says in verse 4, that they shared a common faith, a common belief, the body of Christian truth. It's the same language that Jude describes the body of Christian truth in Jude 3. He said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints that's it that's the common faith it's the common salvation that they have in Jesus Christ it's the common beliefs that have been handed down to us through the Word of God throughout all of church history and it was delivered once and for all to all of the Saints and this is what united Paul and Titus though from various different backgrounds together in this father-son relationship in the faith and out of this relationship Titus became a missionary partner to Paul, and he served with Paul the last 15 years of Paul's life in Ephesus, Corinth, and now Crete. And the text tells us that Paul has left Titus in Crete to finish what remained in the churches. That Titus was to shepherd and teach the church at Crete. Now, what you need to understand is Crete was a difficult and hard place. One historian described Crete this way. It's almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. And you thought you had it bad. Look in Titus chapter 1 and verse 12. This is how Paul describes the culture of Crete. He said, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That was the culture of Crete, full of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And in addition to that, there was moral and doctrinal confusion in the church. Look at Titus chapter 1 in verse 16. Paul says they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And so Paul drops his young protege in ministry into the context of that culture, and he says, Titus, there's things that are a mess and unfinished in the church at Crete. Straighten it out. And so Paul had a concern for this church. Now I'm going to show you what his concern was. Keep your Bible open. In chapter 1 and verse 5, he wanted order brought into the church. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. He wanted the church to be orderly. In chapter 1 and verse 13, he wanted the church to be healthy. He said, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. He wanted the church to be sound in its faith. He wanted it to be healthy. And then in chapter 2, in verse number 10, he wanted it to be lovely. He says, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He wanted the church to adorn the doctrine of God. He wanted the church to be a lovely picture of what God is like. And so through these three concerns for the church, we see Paul's desire for Titus to establish a link between devotion, doctrine, and discipleship. How was Titus to do this? Well, when you study the book, you're going to find the word teach, instruct, and remind used six times in three chapters. How is Paul to make the church orderly? How is he to make it healthy? How is he to make it lovely? He is to teach. He is to instruct. And he is to remind. He is is to continue to do this over and over again. Now, are you thinking with me? Are you asking the question? What does he need to teach? What does he need to instruct? And what does he need to remind? Are you asking that question? Don't you want to know? Aren't you curious? Three things. Salvation, number one. Could you listen to your pastor this morning? This is the foundation for everything in your life and in your family and in the church. It is salvation that is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. For a church to be orderly, for a church to be healthy, and for a church to be lovely, the church must be made up of saved people. And even when a church is made up of saved people, it is still difficult for a church to be orderly, healthy, and lovely because we're all still sinners even though we've been saved. But it really helps if at the foundational level what it means to be a member of a church is that you're a Christian, that you're saved, that you've turned from your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior. And did you know in the book of Titus there's two major gospel sections that present the plan of salvation and the work of Jesus Christ in this book? In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 you find the first one and in titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 8 you find the second one and do you know what paul teaches in these two passages what he teaches in these two passages is true of every single person that is in this room every single one of us is ruined by sin we've all fallen short of the glory of god we've all been born in sin What is true for every single one of us in this room is that God, while we were still sinners, sent a rescuer, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is true for every single one of us in this room, if we will confess our sins and if we will repent and turn away from our sins and turn to Christ, God will redeem us and set us free from our sins. He will give us new life in Jesus Christ and he will renew us. And once we're renewed, Paul says in these texts that we will have a relentless desire to love God and serve Him and worship Him. And Paul says in this text, when you're a true Christian, you're ready for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. Now, I've just summarized for you quickly what I said in point number two about the gospel and what Christ has done for all of us. And I've summarized it in those six words and markings. And what I want you to know this morning is if that outline that I've just described doesn't describe you, you need to know Christ as your Savior. You need to be changed. And so, for a church to be orderly, healthy, and lovely, it must be made up of saved, regenerated, born again, forgiven people. So, Titus is to teach them about salvation. Secondly, Titus is to teach them about service. It is filled all through chapter 2 and chapter 3. And notice the order. He didn't talk to them about service before he talked to them about their salvation. Because your service always flows from your salvation. And listen to me. You need to get this straight. We live in a culture. We live in an area where churches say, Oh, you work. And if you work good enough, the good will outweigh the bad and you'll get to heaven. Friends, that is not in your Bible. I've read it from cover to cover it's not there Oh, works get you to heaven but it's not your works it's Christ's work you need Christ's work to take you to heaven not yours yours will never get you there but once you know Christ is your Savior and once you've been changed and the old is gone and the new has come like the Bible talks about you got a desire to want to serve him You want to please him. You want to obey him. You want to follow him. You want to make a difference with your life for him. And so Titus will teach them about service. Service doesn't get you to heaven. Works don't get you to heaven. The good will never outweigh the bad. You need the goodness of Jesus Christ on your life to get to heaven, friends. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. And number three, he'll teach them about others. Did you know that Paul never ministered alone? He always had other people in his life. When you study his letters carefully, they always carry greetings to friends and fellow co-workers. When you read the end of the book of Romans, for example, if you stop and count, he lists 27 people that he sends greetings and affection to at the end of the book of Romans. Paul never ministered alone. Paul built relationships. Paul invested in other people's lives. Listen to your pastor. This is not to be unique with Paul. Paul's way of doing life and ministry in the church should not be unique to him. We all, as brothers and sisters in Christ, have responsibilities to others. Do you have your Bible open? I'll show you. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Titus's mission was to, impo- to appoint other elders. Chapter 1 and verse 9. The elders' mission was to encourage and instruct other people. Titus chapter 1 and verse 11. The sin of false teachers was ruining other people in the church. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Older men, older women, younger women, and younger men were to set examples for one another and influence other people's lives. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Slaves are to order their conduct so as to promote the spiritual well-being of of their masters chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 all of the church is to exhibit respectful and responsible behavior in the community for the good of others chapter 3 verses 9 through 11 divisive behavior within the church is to be avoided and disciplined because it hurts others do you see gospel life and gospel ministry is not just about you. It's about others. And against the tendency in our culture to make our faith private, these expectations and admonitions of the apostle remind us That God does not intend for any of us to live our faith in isolation away from other people. It is contrary to the thinking of Scripture. Church is not about you. Kent Hughes said it this way. A mark of maturity in believers is their sense of responsibility for others in the church community. Whatever community of believers we currently share, whether it is in an academic, institutional, or social setting, it is a training ground for the development of a heart of concern for others. The church is a training ground to develop a heart of concern for other people. He goes on. If we limit our interest and involvement in such a community to what benefits us, we will stunt the growth of a mature faith in ourselves and we'll also deny the spiritual community the gifts we possess that would further its ministry. So you'll stunt your own growth and you'll stunt the growth of the church if you live for yourself by giving our time, sharing our wealth, Praying for the needy, forgiving each other, and living godly lives for the sake of one another in the church, we develop the selfless attitudes and expansive hearts that are necessary for an effective witness to those outside the church. Did you hear that? Selfless attitude, expansive heart. When you give of yourself to others. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. It is to be a follower Of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be a disciple is to be someone who invests in the lives of other people the Apostle Paul discipled elders and deacons and leaders in the church and eventually he discipled Titus and in this book he says to Titus Titus I've invested in you now you take what I've given you and you go and you invest it in others so that they can take what you give them and go invest it in others. And Titus, that's how you're going to reach the church and that's how you're going to reach the next generation. And Titus, if you want a life that lasts after you're long gone, invest in other people. That's the principle, friends. It's as simple as this. If God has used other people to work in your life, and if God has worked in your life, you got to take what He's done and you got to give it away. you got to give it away. Robbie Gallaty said, the goal of Christianity is not to show up at church every Sunday morning and simply be fed by the pastor. The goal of Christianity is to be fed in a way that allows and encourages you to give it away. I'll tell you this, friends. You can count on me coming to be hot fired up and prepared every week to give you everything that I've got but if you soak it up if you soak it up if you soak it up and you never do anything with it you'll sour you'll sour and you'll be stunted in your growth you got to give it away so who are you giving it away to you say oh pastor I can't give it away I'm an introvert Uh, That isn't going to work on me. I I think I can stand toe to toe with any introvert in here. And look where I am right now. No, that's not going to work. I don't know enough. Cop out. You know something. Don't you? Don't you know something? Well, take the something that you got and give it away and God will give you more. Maybe he's not giving you more because you haven't used what he's already given you. Just a thought. No, friends, you're you're piling up excuses in your mind right now. You're building up a wall because the Word of God is making you uncomfortable. Give it away. Give it away. You've got no excuse. I've read to you the culture that Paul dropped Titus in. It's the same kind of culture that you and I are living in. And if Titus could go to that culture and proclaim the doctrine of the Word of God and invest it in other people for orderliness and healthiness and loveliness, you can too. You're just making an excuse. Because look at the text. He's given you everything you need to do it. Paul knew that Titus would have objections. So look at the end of verse 4. Titus, while you're doing this, may the grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior be with you. Titus, grace and peace is what got you into the kingdom of God. It's what's going to keep you in the kingdom of God. And Titus, it's what's going to help you finish for the glory of God. Titus, you're going to be able to teach and instruct and remind because you have the grace and peace of God. Titus, you're going to be able to correct and forgive and serve and endure affliction and persevere because you have the grace and peace of God. No excuses, Titus. No excuses. Give it away. So I'm going to close this morning with four application points. Here's the first one. You can only pass on to others what you've received. And unless the grace and peace and truth of Jesus Christ have infused and transformed your life, you'll never be able to help others. And so I just simply want to ask you this morning, has Jesus Christ changed your life? Friends, I'm not asking you today if you prayed a prayer. Let's not be confused. I'm not asking you if you walked an aisle. I'm not asking you if you've done anything like that. I'm asking you if your life is different because of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says clearly that when you become a Christian, old things pass away in your life and everything becomes new. And so it's a question of, has things become new in your life? Are things becoming new? Is there a change? Is there a difference in your life? Because if Christ hasn't transformed your life, you can't give anything away. You've got nothing to give away. You need Christ. Application number two. We can deceive ourselves into thinking we are doing better than we really are. Have you given someone permission to ask you the hard questions in your life that need to be asked? Who tells you what you need to hear? Oh, men, listen to me. If you're married, this is free. This isn't even in my notes this morning. You get extra. If you're married this morning, one of those people in your life better be your wife. She better have full openness to ask you anything she wants to ask you and check on your soul. Because she knows you better than everybody else in your life but God. And if you're resisting her questions, you are setting yourself up to fail. Application number three. How does this simple message and example in these verses change your view of and your commitment to your church? How does the truth that has been proclaimed this morning change your view and your commitment to your church? What are you doing to invest in the generation behind you? Do you know what I love about our church family? In this room right now, there's senior adults all the way down to babies. Every generation represented. Because every generation needs the generation before it. And I can't speak for you this morning, but it's been the burden and the passion of my life for years to reach back into the generation behind me. And now I'm a little bit older. And so I'm trying to reach back into the generation behind that one. And I want, it's my desire, as God gives me life, to keep reaching back further. What are you doing to get that generation behind you? Have you ever looked around this sanctuary and asked yourself, who in this room, who is a part of this body of believers can I pour my life into? Who can I disciple? Who can I mentor? Who can I give what others have given to me? Who could I read and discuss a book with? Who could I read a chapter in the Bible with and pray together? Why wouldn't you this very moment while the Lord is pricking your heart before you leave this place today, walk to the other side of the room Talk to them and say, I'd like to meet with you. I'd like to pour my life into you. Sound good? You might be surprised at their answer. Have you ever looked around in the room and said, oh, I just wish I could spend some one-on-one time or two-on-two time with those people. and, And I could just ask questions and glean from them and spend time together. Why wouldn't you go approach them today? Hey, could you make some time for me? I've seen what God's doing in your life, and I could use some help. could use some guidance. Would you give me time? Why wouldn't you ask him? Why would you you come to church every week and sit in the pew and say, Oh, I hope that'll happen. I hope that'll happen. I hope I can get close to him sometime. I hope I can make a connection. Go to him. You're over-complicating the issue. Do you have a true son or daughter in the faith? Do you have a spiritual father or mother? Or is all that God has put in you and all the abilities that He's given you going to be over when you're dead? Or will there be other people be walking around this earth, in this church, in this city, with your fingerprints all over their life? This is the question. Application point number four. Are you growing in your devotion to God and his church, friends? I'm serious. The way this world is, the way this culture is, you can't be a half-hearted Christian anymore. You need to be devoted to God. And I'm going to say to you, you need to be devoted to His church and to the people of God. Half heartedness is not going to get you through what's coming next. Devotion will. So, are you growing in your devotion to God and His church? Are you making progress in your knowledge and love for doctrine and for God's word? Are you taking. All of this that you've been given and giving it away to others, that's discipleship. And do you see it? Do you see the triad in the book? Be devoted to God and His church. And the fuel for your devotion comes from doctrine, from the unchangeable nature of God and His Word. And it will fuel your devotion. It will put fire in your bones and in your soul. And then... As you're burning for Jesus, you're just spilling it out on other people and investing in their lives and making a difference in them. It's not everything that makes a healthy church, but I'm going to tell you this morning if you don't have devotion, if you don't have doctrine, and if you don't have discipleship, you do not have a healthy church. You need all three. Let's pray.